Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Good morning and welcome back to the Gate Buddhist Fellowship. Um, our tradition is to go around and bring ourselves into the space by introducing ourselves by name. Before we do that, is there anyone returning after a hiatus or here for the first time just by show of hands. Welcome. So we'll go around the room and just introduce ourselves. My name is Tom Bruin. My name is Reggie. David. <laughs> My name is Ben Yokoyama. My name is Michael. Gary Dexter. <coughs> David. Joe Good. I'm here. I'm George. I'm Bonnie. My name is George Chen. I'm Greg. My name is Tony Pasco. I'm Bruce. My name is Harley. My name is Jim. I'm Roy. Eric Anderson. <coughs> Jack. I'm Bruce. Uh, Richard, <coughs> excuse me, Richard Azzolini. Mark. My name is Ari. My name is Ray Dyer. My name is Don Rupert. My name is Oswaldo. Peter. <laughs> Martin. My name is John. I'm Gwen. I'm David Bingham. Doug Von Koss. My name is Steve. My name is Jerry Jones. My name is John Curry. Top one. My name is Clint. My name is Simon. Jay Davidson. My name is Roy. I'm Shanti. Did we miss anyone else? Paul. My name is Lenoy. Welcome, everyone. So, our speaker this morning is Sean Fate. Sean has been uh, with us uh, three or four times now. Uh, Sean has practiced meditation and yoga since 1993. He studies with Jack Hornfield, Sylvia Borstein, and Eugene Cash. He was a monk in Burma in 2002 and maintains a regular intensive retreat practice. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Tom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's nice to be back here. It's nice to see um, several familiar faces from other times that I've been here. Can everyone hear me? Is this loud enough? A little louder. A little louder. All right. Put on my opera voice and project. Um, so in uh, speaking with Baruch, who invited me, um, we were talking Dharma uh, in the process, and um, and and he said essentially, why don't you why don't you pick a a great big thorny topic to to speak about. Um, and he said, how about sex? 
So, what's that? We don't, we don't ever talk about it. Yeah. Um, so, um, here goes. Uh, and uh, it's huge, you know. And so, hopefully, we can begin to unpack just a little bit of the hugeness of this and have some time to talk as well. Hmm. Maybe the first thing to notice is what our immediate reaction is even to the idea of talking about sex. And I notice that as I mention even the word my whole body kind of lights up and my heart's beating a little faster. So, as we know, there's a lot of energy here. So, taking a moment, since our practice is mindfulness, our practice is paying attention to what's happening right now. So, just noticing if there's a reaction to the idea of this topic, what we might say, what I might say. And in a way, this moment of noticing is, maybe it's the most important thing that I could say about this topic or to shine the light of practice of our mindfulness or meditation practice, our Dharma practice on the incredible web of content and story and energy and social conditioning and physical sensation. And that all is present when we are going to talk about or think about or act on sexual energy. <clears throat> So just noticing that, whatever's here right now. So we all know that sex is an incredibly powerful force. We all have direct experience of it, whatever our particular story or history is with this energy. And we all, many of us, if I assume that if I assume that you're something like myself, you probably have a thorny or complicated history with sexuality, with sex energy. So, how can we then bring together this practice that we are here learning about or taking on together and this part of our life that is huge. And I think our Dharma practice is only useful, really, if it helps us to address every part of our life, including the most thorny or challenging. So this is a thorny and challenging spot for many people, maybe not everybody, but everyone I know anyway including my teachers, including the ones who people say are enlightened. And we know that 
teachers in spiritual traditions don't always behave in the most pristine way when this energy comes into play. So we can infer from that that it stays challenging for a really long time. So then to back up from that a little bit and just say, what is our practice? What are we doing here? And one way of understanding Dharma practice or Buddhist practice is in light of what the Buddha called wise view, which in a way means we have all the stuff of our life, all the dramas that happen, all of the business and relationships and everything, the everything of our life. And one way of, of making sense of it is to look at it in the light of what the Buddha called wise view. So view, the way you, the way you look at things. Right? And a view is kind of a lens through which we look at things. So, when I was a teenager, I had the view that life sucked really bad, and that everyone was basically hopeless. This was a view. It was, it was conditioned by my experience, which was fairly unpleasant, and I believed that that unpleasantness, I came up with a story that that unpleasantness equaled a certain truth, and that truth was that things basically sucked. So that's a view. I grew out of that view. And, you know, by 15 years later, I had the opposite view, that everything was really rosy and marvelous. And if we were all, you know, kind vegetarian hippies um, and registered for the Green Party um, and threw away our cars and telephones and televisions and all that, that um, we would realize that everything was basically great. This was also a view. I grew out of that one, too. Mm -hmm. so, so the Buddha proposed that there's, that there's a view that's more useful than those kind of views. And the view that he proposed is called the Four Noble Truths. And I imagine many of us here have encountered that teaching has anyone here never encountered the teaching or heard of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths? Brand new. Great. I'm so glad. So, then we don't have to have a Dharma talk about that because sex is more interesting. <laughs> Here's the quickie Four Noble Truths. Stuff is hard. It's hard for a reason. It's not... Let's see. Stuff is hard. It's hard for a reason. It's possible to be free of that hardness. That's my quickie. The third truth is it's possible to be free. The fourth truth is how can we be free? So there's four. And in thinking about talking, uh, kind of aiming myself toward sex as a topic, there's a lot of flashy stuff that could be said about it. Um, you know, we could get tantric and talk about cultivating sexual energy as the, you know, uprising and dissolving of universal um, chi or prana or shakti and, and how that's possible in partnership or alone as you push energy around the body, da da da. Um, but that didn't, didn't actually seem very important. What seemed important was here's a place where we get stuck a lot. What can we do about it? 
And so that led me back to really this simplest teaching of the four truths. So in relation to sexual energy, maybe the way that we can frame the truths is, here's a channel of our experience, our sexuality, in which it's really easy to get stuck. And by stuck, I mean to have thoughts that lead to action that are harmful for ourselves and others, or to experience energies in our body that lead to thoughts, that lead to actions, that lead to experiences that cause suffering or stress or harm for ourselves and others. And the teaching is that it's possible to be free of that. And it doesn't mean to be free of the energy or free of the actions of sexuality, but it means that it's possible to work with them in a way that doesn't cause harm and suffering. So, so far that seems pretty basic. But I don't think it's easy to do. And one of the things that happens as we practice for a while is we can be sitting or we can be on retreat or we can be in a group like this or anywhere in our life once we've started to pay attention to what happens moment to moment. And we might start to notice that we can be overtaken by the energy of sex, sexuality. Often, mostly maybe, in the form of thought, of thought and image, and we're a really visual culture. And so, here comes all around us images and ideas and words and stories and all that we can lump into a technical category called stuff. Uh, Stuff comes from all sides, and it's charged, and it's hot, and it's exciting, and it looks really good, and we want to get close to it. So, what happens when that happens is that we either fall into this second noble truth of suffering, or we don't. And gaining some facility with the process of falling or not falling, I think, is at the heart of our practice. One other thing that often happens as we practice, this often happens on long retreat, it's where we talk about it a lot, but it can happen in any sitting or, again, any time in your life, is something that teachers sometimes call a life review. And um, folks who have done recovery work are familiar with this in other language as well. That here I am sitting and practicing, I'm paying attention, here's what's happening, oh, here's my breath, here's some sensations in the body, Everything's fine, I'm present. I'm in this room with all these nice guys. No problem. And then out of the blue, oh, that thing that happened when I was at that age, there it is, and I'm feeling it again. And, oh, I said that to that person. I did this to that person, with this person. Ouch. For whatever reason, it seems like most of the things that come up are difficult. I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but my experience is when I 
when I'm when I get suddenly caught in thinking about the past, mostly I think about stuff I've done wrong, things that have gone how I didn't want them to. So regret. And one of the hardest things about regret is that it's very difficult to become calm and happy when there's a lot of regret going on. And again, maybe it's different for a lot of folks, but I notice in my own web of regrets, most of the specific situations that I regret are things that didn't go so well in the realm of sex. I did something or said something or engaged in relationship in a way that was unskillful and hearts were broken, feelings were hurt. And that's what I remember. And I can remember very specific moments that go back a long way. And they stand out from the stream of memory like these sharp kind of spikes of memory. Ouch. And it's really humbling. Oh, I did that. And look, a year later, I did it again. And then I did something like it again. So we can't fix the past. But we have the invitation through our practice to attend to the present and to act as skillfully as we can in the present. So, the first truth, things are hard, things in this realm of sexuality are intense, challenging, sometimes stressful. I don't want to just emphasize the negative, so maybe we can also know that they're powerful and intense and, and potent because there is in that energy also this, this, this incredible force, right? There's the potential for the, this incredible healing and this incredible sensation of the flow of life coming through us. Oh a woman Dharma teacher at some point was talking about emptiness and kind of grand Buddhist topic. Not going to have a Dharma talk about emptiness. Um, But said, oh, you know, emptiness is marvelous. Men love emptiness, she said. And their favorite moment of experiencing emptiness is orgasm. And, And it points to something. She was being a little tongue-in-cheek. But it points to something that I think is true, which is that in, in the peak moments of sexual energy flowing, we can actually feel the small self, the constrictive personality, our limited sense of who we are, dissolve. And there can be something really huge, vast, beautiful there. So it cuts both ways, right? It's, it can be the most potent thing in our life, both for, for wellness and for distress. So, so then practice. 
How do we practice with this? Right? And our basic practice is mindfulness. And in a certain way, we can say, oh, it's, the practice is no different. You know, when we're sitting and we're practicing with mindfulness of the body or attending to sensations in the present, and I'm noticing, oh, that there's some pain in my knee, or, or there's an emotion, there's some heartbreak or some grief, that my practice is to attend to that sensation or emotion or thought without getting too involved. Like, oh, now there's a pain. And it feels like this. And it doesn't mean anything about who I am. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad sitter or a... You know, I might be a, I might be a young arthritic, but it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Yeah. And it probably doesn't even mean that I'm a young arthritic. It actually doesn't mean anything. It's just a sensation. And it's hard enough to work with this when it's something fairly neutral, like a sensation. When it starts to get more charged, like an emotion, it's much more difficult to remember. It's really just remembering that it's not so much about us. I was just on retreat for all of February and March up at Spirit Rock, and very sweet to be on retreat up there. I love this retreat. I've sat that retreat with, with um, a couple of you here in this room at different times. And at one point on the retreat um, in March, early March, I'd been sitting for about five weeks, five or six weeks. And I'd come through lots of waves of up and down, thinking that things were easy, thinking that things were terrible. And I was in a terrible phase. I was in the nadir of the curve, the bottom of the curve. And I came in to a teacher that I was working with, Sharda, who I love very much. Brilliant teacher. She's sharp. She's really crisp. And I came in, and I just started crying. And there wasn't big content. I wasn't doing a life review. I wasn't, like, wrestling with some big part of my personality. I was just trying to be present and trying to be mindful. And, you know, I wanted to be more mindful. And, like, basically things were fine. It was fine. I was at Spirit Rock. It's so gorgeous there. There's nothing to complain about. I walk in and I'm crying and I just say, it's so hard, it's so hard, I can't do it. And, you know, she's great. Like, no sympathy. She's like, what's so hard? And, you know, of course, what I wanted her to say was like, yeah, it's hard, I know, I understand. Poor little meditator. <laughs> but she was great. She, she was like, what's so hard? And then I stop and I think, and I'm like, well, I don't know, but it feels really hard. And she said, it's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. And now I'm really like, huh? It's nothing to do with me. Right, right. It has nothing to do with me. Wow, it's so hard in this moment. And I forgot that, like, this is hard, like, like there's a storm of hardness passing through. I forgot that storms of hardness pass through for everyone. And... And it's a, it's a result of this, kind of all the conditions came together in that moment, that, those two days, 
for there to be a storm of difficulty. And as soon as she said it, it kind of popped a little bit. I was still crying. But I was like, oh, it's true. Wow, it's true. Okay. <laughs> and, and it was like, yeah, you know, an energy of, of, ah, kind of moved in. And it moved on out again. And, you know, I saw her again a handful of days later. And she was like, how's it going now? And, you know, I was in the other part of the curve. And I was like, wow, everything's just happening. Just like, just like shining, unhappening, unfolding one thing to the next. There's nobody here at all. No problem. She's like, great. It's not about you, remember? I was like, oh, yeah, right. So... When things come in and they're, really cha- and they're really charged, it's really hard to remember that. It's not really about us. So that was sort of a, a digression, but see if you can follow me here. See if I can follow me here. The practice is to know what's happening from moment to moment, and as best we can remember that it's not about us. So whatever's happening right now is a result of all the conditions that brought you here. Your family and your community and your tribe and this city and, and the Buddha's enlightenment 2,000 and a half years ago and the coming of, of Buddhism to the West is part of this center being here, is part of us being here and my conditioning and my family and my trauma and yours and all of that infinite conditioning is arising right now. So whatever's whatever's going on for you, whatever your drama is right in this moment, whatever mine is right in this moment, we can notice, oh, it's all just happening. It's not so much about us. So then the practice is just to notice that. Oh, look, this is what's happening. I'm talking about sex. I'm sort of winding around it in some way. I haven't actually said the word that many times. But I'm noticing that I'm sitting here. I'm noticing the sensation in my chest and belly, sensation in my lower body, my pelvis touching the floor. I'm seeing some of your eyes as I look around. And just all the play of like, oh, what I know, what I don't know, my emotions around this and my history, it's all here. I can feel it right here. And if I just keep maybe reminding myself, oh, it's just the play of conditions happening. That's like that's only a partial truth, but it's a reminder. It reminds me not to take it so seriously or not to take it so personally when it gets hard. So a little bit about practice itself. The practice of transforming the stress of things that are charged. Now there's a lot of things to say and I want to have time to just discuss as well. So I'm going to hit a couple points just quickly. The practice of being mindful of sexuality is the third precept. So as we enter into the path of Dharma, one of the things that we can do is we can take on these guidelines that help us to live and act in a way that causes less harm to ourselves and others. Give us maybe some hope of not planting seeds of regret. And the third precept is to be mindful, 
of sexual energy and to move with it or act with it or let it move through us using our best skill to not cause harm. And all the precepts are rooted in the first precept, which is ahimsa, which is non-harming. It's important to mention when we mention precepts that they sound like commandments. Don't cause harm. And, and that's okay. Because I think it's important, maybe, to be a little strict with ourselves. Because sometimes we're like two-year-olds. And it's sometimes important to be strict with a two-year-old. Don't cause harm. Don't run out in the street. But because sex is so potent, every authoritarian regime in the world has come up with a way to try to control it. And they all fail, but they try, which means that all of us are conditioned by repression around sexuality. Everyone in this culture is conditioned by the fear of sexuality that's transmitted to us through church, family, school, neighbors, whatever, wherever it came to from you. And in the gay community, added to that repression around sex that everyone feels is discrimination and fear. So we all carry that. However we express our sexuality, whoever we're attracted to in any form. So knowing that that's true, I think is important if we take on the precepts. Because we don't want to take on that third precept, oh, I should be mindful of my sexuality, how I, how I work with it. We don't want to just add fuel to the fire of discrimination or fear of that energy. So I don't know how to completely uproot that thing other than being mindful as often as I can of it. So we can take on this precept. May I move with this energy in a way that is healing for myself and others. (coughs) So then I'll say one other practice piece. So that's a practice piece and that's something that we can take on as an intention through our whole life through each day. It's not about just the moments of having sex as a sort of technical act, but it actually, it's how that energy of eros moves through our whole life. How does it move through us as we're walking down the street, seeing people? How does it move through us when we're in a social setting, like we will be in 20 minutes with each other? How does that energy move? Can I move with it in a way that is joyous, non-contracted? non-grasping. So then one more practice piece, and this is directly about the back to the noble truths. So the first truth is that stuff is hard, there's stress or suffering. The second noble truth is that there's a cause of that suffering and that that cause is, and I'll just use the Pali word first, tanha. And in a literal translation of that means thirst. And it's thirst like like that intense craving thirst when you're dehydrated. It's the feeling of like, I gotta have that drink right now. 
And I like this translation because I don't want to, I don't want to use the Victorian translation, desire. Because I like desire. I desire my partner. I like it when we desire each other at the same time, because then stuff happens. And in this culture, there's a way that we can feel the energy of desire as being this very positive thing. It's an upwelling of primal, beautiful energy. But, but, right, desire so easily falls off the edge of this cliff or falls off this very thin line into grasping. And grasping basically is like, I want that, I'm doing it with clenched teeth. I want that, and if I don't have it, it's going to hurt more. So then, as soon as that happens, I'm suffering, the object of my desire maybe is suffering. And then I act on that, and all sorts of difficulty ensues. So part of our practice then, is to tease out, is to tease out the clenched desire from the open, broad bright desire. Hmm. You'll say one more thing about that. There's a lot that can be unpacked in that direction. The third precept, when we chant it, we chant a word called Brahmacharya, which is an old Sanskrit word that sometimes is translated as celibacy. But that's for monastics, that's for monks. And I was a monk for a little while, I was celibate for a short period as a monk. Being a monk is great. None of us in here are monks. Mm unless you're in disguise and left your robes at home. The word brahmacharya literally means brahma, which is the divine, and charya is action, or that which is to be followed. So, the action of the gods. So this is a very, very different than celibate. And we might think, oh, when I'm in action, I'm godlike. And it might be true. <laughs> Good for you. Um, one of the reasons I like to unpack the literal meaning is that it can point us to the wise life in the flow of this energy. Can we move with this energy in a way that is, that is resonant with or like that which is divine, that which cares for everything, that which is the benevolent energy of everything? whatever we think about gods or that word. The last thing I'll say, and then I want to have a couple minutes for questions, is that mindfulness of sexuality ends up being an aspect of mindfulness of the body, in part. One of the things that happens when sexual energy is bright in us is that there's strong physical sensation. We all know this. You're like, hi, obvious. And one of the things that we may not notice is that along with that physical sensation that is quite pleasurable often, can be substantial mental activity. 
In other words, we think a lot about sex. And when sexual energy arises, we can often get very thinky. Thinky is a technical Buddhist term. <laughs> it's a translation of the Pali word papancha, which means thinking lots and lots and lots uncontrollably about something and jumping from one thought to the next. So I'm walking down the street, I see hot person X, and if I just stop there, there's no suffering. Ah, seeing. And maybe there's a thrill in the body, Whew, feeling, no problem. But if I jump from that into, ooh, he, he, she, is delightful, desirable, maybe I should flirt, maybe I should say something, oh, but I'm not wearing the right shirt today, I'm not in my most attractive, and da 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 thinking, thinking, thinking. Suddenly, there's stress and suffering. And suddenly, I'm all in the mind. Where'd my body go? I, could, I probably completely missed that really lovely little rush of, hmm. And, and which is more pleasurable? Yakking to myself about who I am and who that is and how it's all gonna go wrong? or feeling the little mmm. If I actually felt a little mmm, it actually lasts for about three seconds, and then it's gone, if you really feel it. So then, the practice that I'll leave you with to end this is notice. If I was a Zen teacher, I'd just put a period there. Notice. End of talk. Uh, notice when the energy of desire arises the energy of attraction and see if it's possible to tease tease out oh, this is the thought and this is the sensation and you can see them both kind of bubbling away at once oh, here I'm making a fantasy about this thing it's really cool cool, hot, whatever, right? But then like, oh, if I drop away from that into the body, there's this buzzing in the groin, there's butterflies in the stomach, there's pounding in the heart, there's goosebumps all over the body. However that plays out for you. Young. Or ah, or whatever. But you can feel it. Ah, that's the sensation. And the fierce practice of it is to keep setting aside the mind part nothing wrong with the thought, there's nothing wrong with the fantasy, but we get lost there so easily. So, just as a discipline, oh, what's the body feeling? What does this feel like in my body? And then stay with that until it changes. If we had more time, we could do a little tantric exercise together. But we're not going to, um, because I want to have four minutes for questions. Um, and be one of the miraculous guest speakers who actually ends on time. We'll see if it happens, but... That's the practice. Sense the body. Stay in the body. Notice when sex appears on your horizon and how easily we jump to the mind. And then say, oh, what's my body doing? And so that's a beginning to mindfulness of that. All right, so just a couple of questions. Any, anything... Burning. It's not so much a question as a statement. This past week, I was at a men's retreat, and I led two erotic touch exercises. And the overriding focus was bringing mindfulness into that, yes. and communication, and asking for what you want, and being in service to the person. And it's just amazing 
talking with the men that we say there's so few opportunities to, to practice. I practice meditation, I practice yoga, yeah. and now I, I practice being erotic. And right. I think that the, the modeling we get, most pornography is pretty soulless. So I think right. there's a need for, you know, how do we actually put this, these erotic ideas into practice? How do we practice our erotic lives? Yes. And certainly, um, you know, we mostly practice meditation and yoga in our own bodies. We can practice in our own bodies as well, right? So we don't need a partner to do that practice. And when you get to be in a situation like that, that's quite a precious situation where you can be communicating and mindful with each other. Well, you're actually, you're emphasizing, you're, you're, right. you're, you're not just turning people loose, but you're keeping them, trying to keep them focused on what there's a whole. Yes. So I think we need more of that. I'm with you. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, I just want to follow up on what Richard said. Um, I, I've been involved in other Buddhist, Buddhist communities besides this one, and it seems like the definition I have about right sexuality is sexuality in a committed relationship with one other person. Uh -huh. uh, and, yeah, I, 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 <coughs> The fascinating thing about Buddhism is when it goes from culture to culture, it takes on aspects of that culture. Right. Um, and I think one thing that, that gays and lesbians can bring, well, probably more gay men, can, can, can bring to the table of Buddhism is, is challenging that, that, what I think is rather limited view about proper sexuality or right sexuality. Um, and and I, I wonder if this is ever discussed about, I mean, in the Buddhist communities that you travel through that, you know, maybe we ought to expand what's, what's right sexuality, where it doesn't have to be just within a committed relationship, committed monogamous relationship, but uh, maybe we can explore being sexual with other people in a way that's even not casual, but, but in a way where it's still open and, and loving and honest, mm -hmm. uh, and, and nobody walks, walks away hurt. Or so, damaged. it's that last line that's important. <coughs> um, and, the, and the question about it, and I think the reason the traditions well, first of all, the traditions are patriarchal and they come from a tradition of you know, sexuality being an object of control. So that's where that comes from in Asia, very particular structures. Um, so yeah, we have the possibility of doing something else here, but it all hinges on that last line, so that nobody walks away hurt. Um, and the, so then the, the challenge that I would give in relation to that um, is... And, I'll, and I'll, I'll give disclosure that I'm, um, I'm in a non-monogamous marriage right now, so I'm practicing that as well. But, um, but the challenge I would give to that proposition is, um, why do we want that? Why do we want to do that? And to really ask ourselves what's happening there when I want many partners or a casual casual, the word you used, um, ethos around my sexuality, is it springing from an authentic desire or an authentic impulse to just be in my full life, in the full sharing of life with my community? Or is it springing from scarcity, from grasping, from a, like, not enough mentality? So... No one can answer this for you, but one of the things that the practice of wise sexuality, I think, invites us to do, and it's quite a sharp sword, is that we have to be really honest with ourselves. And, you know, why am I doing this? 
So as I, as I come into a new encounter with a person, why am I doing this? Is this for my own benefit and their benefit and the benefit of everyone? And if I'm really honest, I will notice that probably my motivations are mixed. That like, yes, I'm experiencing the flow of unfolding life in its beauty and I'm really hot for this person and I just want them. And is, is that a bad thing to feel? You know? It feels I think it's great. For me, it feels great. <laughs> right. For me, it feels great. For you, it feels great. But again, um, this is the this is the thorny part. Of it. This is this is the part I would like to actually to be able to talk really for an hour with you guys about and hear from people. Is it feels great, and I don't think in any way there's anything wrong with it. In some absolute way, the divine doesn't care. I think. Right? There's no like overarching ethical thing. But what's really happening in that moment? And if we really take on the Four Noble Truths, where is there stress? Why is there stress? How can I live with less stress? Then we'll have to be honest from moment to moment. What's making me do this? And... This is an instruction the Buddha gave to his son Rahula when his son was like eight years old. He said, before you do something, ask yourself, is this thing I'm about to do going to bring well-being and happiness in the long term to myself and others? And you get as honest as you can. It's like, oh yes, this is good. There's no constriction here. Then you go ahead and do it. And the Buddha says, you can ask that in the middle of the act and at the end. Did this thing that I just did bring happiness and well-being in the long term for myself and others? So... I meet somebody casually, we're attracted, there's heat. It's wonderful. Maybe we want to jump in bed right away. It's great. And I just want to ask myself, is this for our well-being? And maybe I want to, maybe I want to for instance, I want the reassurance that there's no deception going on. So maybe I don't know them very well. What if they're in you know, a supposedly monogamous relationship with somebody else? And so there's deception on their part in what they're doing. And I don't know that. I might want to know that. So I might want to check in about that. Is what we're doing good for you and your partnerships and your, like, is all that good? And I might want to be clear in myself what's happening, you know. So there's no big, there's no big wrong, you know. And I think a lot of the Western Buddhist teachers, my teachers, would say sex is great. We love it. And it's challenging. And the challenge is to be honest. Mindfulness is honesty practice, you know? Right now, there's a little pain in my hip. I've been sitting and I didn't stretch at the stretch break. Honesty is being like, oh, it's just, it's just a pain, you know? I'm just being honest with myself. This is what's happening. That's an uncharged situation. Sex is a really charged situation. Way harder to be honest. So that's a little piece about that. Yeah. Um, last thing we, we're supposed to stop now so there we go that's how it goes um, let's have one more three more um, I'll, let, I'll let time choose yeah I think you're the one um, this may illustrate a little bit what you're uh, saying uh, I was on one of these tweets like what Richard was talking about yeah. and we were uh, randomly assigned to a partner yeah and we were doing this exercise involving erotic touch and so forth. 
And before it started, the instructor said, if you're lucky, you'll be assigned to someone who you are not erotically attracted to. Right. And of course, I thought, well, he was right. And I think it was because we had this erotic interaction, and we were, I was anyways, free of this clinging or this grasping sort of thing. Right. And was able to have a rather remarkable and indelible experience. Yes. Which might have been very different if you had gotten, you know, the guy you really wanted exactly. to go, oh, I want him, I want him, you know. And we, we do this, totally. It's... Mm. It's really deep, this energy. It's, re- it's so powerful. And, you know, if, if we're now using the word honest... I can say, if I really get honest, my desire for sexual satisfaction and comfort um, is driving the bus a lot of the time as I wander through the world. You know, I've made entire life choices. I was brought to Buddhism by the desire for sex. In a long, convoluted story that I can't tell because it's another time. But there you go, um, you know, um, yoga as well. Uh, so, you know, and lots of things. Just It goes on and on and on and on and on. How many big decisions have you made because somebody was, you know? So, all I want is to be free. And what in free for me means that I notice when I'm being pushed around by the universe, by the forces of things. Free means that I get to make some choice about what I do from moment to moment. And that I actually see what's actually happening from moment to moment. This is happening. How can I be free in relation to this? doesn't mean I, whatever I do. What's happening right now? And how, how can the most spacious presence in the, in the flow of life unfolding, how can that be my experience right now with as little fixation as possible? All right, so we should stop. It's a pleasure to see you all again. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Thank you, Sean. Obviously, we need to have you back for the rest of the story. <laughs> I think I am coming back in, in the fall. Um, so if there's a petition for, you know, sex talk part two, we can do that. Or maybe we'll just sing to Krishna. Before I open it up to announcements, uh, maybe we can hear from our host, Tony. Yes, I'm hosting today. Um, both things, if you have a cup of tea... Please wash the tea in some hot, or the tea cup, sorry, in hot soapy water, and then put it on the drying rack. Thank you. Um, on the credenza over here is a sign-up sheet. If you want to be on the mailing list, either the snail mail mailing list or email, um, you can fill out the form there, add your name to it. Um, next to that is a Donna bowl, which you may practice your generosity by leaving some money in the Donna bowl. Uh, and I will actually walk around with it to help facilitate that. Um, 
anywhere five to eight dollars or whatever your move to get. And lastly, around 12.30, a group of people will sometimes gather by the front door to go to lunch together. So if you're interested in joining for lunch after the social, social half hour, just stand by the door around 12.30. Great. And I'd like to encourage everyone to welcome our new members, um, Marty, Dave, Sam, and is there someone else here? Oh, welcome back. Marty's not new. Marty was a mainstay in one of the things that really kept this place going for a while. Oh, wonderful. Years ago, was that five years? Five years. <laughs> <laughs> was really, uh, welcome back. Really, of course, that helped keep us going. Yeah. Other other announcements? Jim? Hi. Um, thanks again, Sean. I'm on the program committee. I could not be here today to the board, so. Thank you. And next week, another thorny topic. I feel like uh, the view here. Gary uh, <laughs> uh, Oster is one of our members that's going to speak about death. There wasn't planned. <laughs> Anything else? It seems very appropriate to make this announcement. Body Electric is having a workshop this year at the Voting Center. New Mexico, where you work on your meditation practice in the morning and your erotic practice in the in the evening, uh, the afternoon, and it's being led by Stephen Schwartzberg and Michael Cohen. And some of you may know these guys; they're really just amazingly mindful and focused. So um, you can check it out on Body Electric site. There's much more information there. So something to consider. Is that at Bodhi Manda in Hemis Springs? I'm not sure. It's like the Bodhi Center. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I don't know more um, about it. In my early days as a Zen student, I lived at that Zen center, and I was the cook for one of those retreats when I very, very, very first arrived um, in Buddhist practice. Um, and I hooked up with somebody during it. <laughs> so, now you're getting into your next talk. <laughs> so the great retreat, go. Uh, our annual retreat is scheduled for September, the 17th through the 19th, at Vajrapani Institute. That's uh, a little less than five months away, but it's not too early to mark your calendar. And uh, it's a lovely blend of kind of traditional silent uh, meditation, walking meditation, but also a lot of interactive time, time to get to know one another. So I'll be making further announcements in the months to come. Registration will open in July. But if you have any questions for me, please uh, feel free. Thanks. Great. Seeing nothing else, um, Sean, would you lead us in our dedication of merit as we gather in a circle? our practice is a blessing and a refuge and a safe harbor for us amid all of the waves of our life. So we send our wish that the blessings and merit of our practice 
and ripple out in all directions to touch all beings. May everyone know refuge and safe harbor, clarity of mind and heart in the presence of everything potent and lively that arises. May our practice be a blessing for each of us here and for everyone everywhere. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.